Good evening, everyone. I'm noticing that I'm a, I'm a little sad we're getting close to the end. And also, in talking with some people today in uh, individual <coughs> interviews, that uh, we all seem to be making very good use of our time here. And I think we can appreciate that within ourselves. And I would encourage you uh, to, in whatever way feels appropriate, to acknowledge the good effort that you're making. Tonight I want to talk about fear and courage. How specifically working with fear both in practice and daily life uh, is a way of facilitating courage. A very open and engaged way of being with life and in a sense proactively moving toward that which we want, okay? I want to read a short passage from the Majima Nikaya as a way of providing a core image that we can then work with. Suppose monks, and we can assume that uh, by monks in this context, we're all included, uh, men and women practitioners uh, involved in a diligent study of meditation practice. Sometimes I'll use the word practitioners. Maybe we'll even change it. Suppose practitioners... A man or woman, in the course of a journey, saw a great expanse of water, whose near shore was dangerous and fearful, and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge going to the far shore. Then he or she thought, suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves, and bind them together as a raft. Sounds like kontiki. And supported by the raft, and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the far shore. Having arrived at the far shore, he or she might think thus, this raft, this raft, has been, has been very useful to me. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder, then go wherever I want. Now, monks, practitioners, what do you think? By doing so, would that man or woman be doing what should be done with the raft? And they answer, No, venerable sir. By doing what that man or woman be doing, by doing what would that man or woman be doing, what should be done with the raft? Having arrived at the far shore, he or she might think thus: This raft was very helpful to me. Suppose I were to haul it onto dry land or set it adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. Now, practitioners. It is by doing so that the man or woman would be doing what should be done with the raft. And so have I shown you how the Dharma is similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. So what I'd like to talk about is this idea of going wherever I want. <clears throat> Often, uh, and some of you, have some of you heard this passage before? Yeah. 
Often this excerpt is used to explore primarily the raft and to explore the raft as a metaphor for attachment, um, either generally or specifically to spiritual or religious views that while on the one hand are very, very useful, if clung to uh, over time might become divisive or worse, even keep us actually from seeing uh, through to a deeper uh, level of understanding. What I would like to highlight in this story is both the contrasting images of the two shores rather than the raft itself, as well as the analogy of Dharma practice as a form of crossing over, as a way of getting from one place to another place. Specifically tonight, as a way from as a way of getting from fear to courage. I'll read just the first part of the longer passage again. Suppose practitioners, a man or a woman, in the course of a journey, saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful, and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. Okay. So this near shore is dangerous and fearful. Okay. The far shore is safe and free from fear. The image of the two shores can be understood in two ways uh, generally. Opposing states of mind, wisdom in the absence of wisdom, and the quality of life associated with those mind states. So now we'll unpack uh, the imagery of each shore a little bit further. The language pertaining to the near shore, this is, um, by the way, and you'll see as I unpack this, this is where we often find ourselves standing. Okay? The language pertaining toward the near shore associates fear with danger. Associates fear with danger. Implying a risk in letting fear rule our lives or limit us in the many ways that it does. Ultimately, it is fear that underlies clinging and attachment, the tanha that gives rise to dukkha, uh, which leads uh, to clinging, which gives rise to the cycle or perpetuation of samsara. If we look closely at our life, we might begin to unearth the myriad ways that fear holds us back from being deeply engaged and fully authentic. Can you connect with this at all? We might find that our lives sometimes lack the feeling of wholeness that we touch into when our inner values and outer actions are perfectly synced, a wholeness that is inherently restored, restorative and rejuvenating simultaneously. One of the greatest sufferings that people report as I get to know them through this work is not that their back hurts. It's not that they have... Uh, sore knee. Um, it's not even often the pain of illness and difficult interpersonal relationships. But for some people, it's the tension caused by becoming aware of what is meaningful and value, valuable to oneself and not knowing how to achieve it, not, how, not knowing how to uh, manifest it in the actual forms of our living. I want a new job. I want a relationship with a partner who makes me feel empowered. I want to write a book. I want to make more art. Um, I want to pick up a hobby. Uh, 
I'm going to quit my job. I want to live with less money, etc., etc. I want to live more simply. I want to give back to more people, but I'm stuck uh, because I have to work 60 hours a week, but I'd like to do some service. When our inner values and outer actions are perfectly synced, there's an inherent, well, uh, there's an inherent quality of well-being that comes forth. There's, there's a kind of wholeness uh, that allows us to settle. We, we actually don't have to try that hard anymore. This is also sometimes true of our practice, simply that fear holds us back, just like doubt. Um, doubt is a form of distrust of oneself or the teachings or the practice techniques. Fear is this basic sense of, I don't know where I'm going, you know. If I really do what they're saying and fully turn toward this difficult sensation in my hip or my lack, my back, or if I really fully allow myself to feel this sadness, I don't know what's going to happen. Because our conditioning for 20 years if you're 20, or 40 years if you're 40, or 60 years if you're 60, or 80 years if you're 80, and maybe for lifetimes before this incarnation, we've been strengthening the opposite. Often that is to turn away from that which is unpleasant and difficult. It's very simple, really, when we think about it in these terms. The practice is going against this fundamentally. The far shore, over there, on the other side of this great expanse of water, uh, the language depicting the far shore uh, suggests the opposite, the absence of fear and how this results in safety. This is interesting. whose further shore was safe and free from fear. Safety in Buddhist parlance often refers to what is left within oneself when the heart and mind are purified. What we're protected from is unskillful actions which give rise to suffering, both our own and other suffering. When this happens, we feel that the world and our life are inherently workable rather than burdensome. Ultimately, protection comes from the reduction or elimination of greed, hatred, and delusion. Uh, what one uh, Hatha Yoga teacher called the three poisons. Greed, any variation of strong want, desire that leads to clinging and attachment. Sometimes we don't identify with the word greed, but it, we want to see it, I think, as a category referring to all the manifestations of attachment and clinging. <coughs> hatred, again, some of us don't identify with the word hatred, but this is all the variations of aversion, resistance, I don't want, all the ways that we push life away. And delusion uh, refers to the basic absence of wisdom or right view. This is avijja, which we spoke quite a bit about two nights ago. So let's talk about the near shore and suffering. This is the place we more often than not find ourselves. And it's represented by some level of suffering due to not seeing the true nature of things. How oneself and how the universe operate. Right? This is really what dukkha comes down to. Uh, it is a result of not seeing how we actually operate, how the mind actually functions, and in turn, how the universe 
functions or operates. We don't understand cause and effect. Okay. So how does the near shore show up? How does suffering show up? Physical dukkha, physical suffering, right? Physical pain, um, chronic illness, difficulty with parts of the body. The eyes don't work. When I was driving to uh, New Jersey, about three quarters of the way here, I realized I forgot my glasses. Okay. So now I'm driving through, you know, East, I don't know where I am and have never been here before looking for like a Walgreens to buy readers so that I can try to read my note. And if you notice, every now and again, I have notes that I, I print this out pretty big so that I can read it, but then I write, I, I'll read it before I come down to teach and I'll think, oh, geez, that's not quite right. That doesn't make any sense. And I cross it out and then I make a little note to myself. I can't see those notes. You know, somebody else, uh, you know, the heart doesn't work quite the way they want it to. Um, there's a heart condition. Um, we're too hot. We're too cold. I mean, it's just it's something, right? Something that might be more mundane, like it's too hot or too cold, or it might go, and, and will go away, that will shift. Uh, and some of the other physical pains are much more challenging to endure, Right? It seems as if this grand notion of impermanence is not revealing itself, particularly around chronic uh, health challenges and limitations, right? We have emotional dukkha. We have emotional suffering. Uh, you know, emotional stress or suffering... Uh, you know, really conjures up any kind of stress or worry, anxiety, all the afflictive states that are uncomfortable, undesirable. Financial worry. What's interesting about financial stress is that people who don't have a lot of money have it. And people who have a lot of money have it. <laughs> it's interesting. If you have a lot of it, you might lose it. I had a friend once come to lunch, and he was all stressed out. I said, what's the matter? He says, well, I lost $300,000. I'm all stressed out. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, wow. <laughs> I don't get it. You know, How does that happen? <laughs> How do you... Not how do you lose it, but how do you get it <laughs> in the first place? <laughs> About two years ago, I did a lot of reading around, uh, around money, around ideas and views of money. And uh, this was actually part of an assignment that a group of 14 of us agreed to do as part of a long-term teacher training and during a roughly four-month period of time when I was asked to do some reading and reflecting on this, I was listening to NPR and uh, the, uh, the, 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 the author of a book called Happy Money was being interviewed and I immediately ordered the book and uh, not really the kind of book that I typically would be drawn to but it, it uh, sounded useful in the context of this contemplation that I was engaged in. And the author made it very clear that, in fact, not having a lot of money to the extent that one has debt can be very, very, very detrimental to one's emotional well-being. It can be very, very stressful. Lots of anxiety, uh, lots of worry, uh, difficulty sleeping. And through extensive research, uh, put out a number that... Uh, indicated where we might want to get to if we wanted to be relative, feel relatively financial, financially stable, uh, and said basic. And that number was much lower than I thought. 
but through this research, it was determined, yes, eliminating debt actually helps, but the, your income doesn't have to be that high. I mean, you know, there's different studies like this, and they come up with different numbers. Um, alternatively, I have another friend who works, uh, I won't say where they work, you might listen to this, um, but they have an extraordinary income in the millions. Sometimes, sometimes they'll make several million dollars a day between breakfast and dinner. <laughs> and they're not happy, to, for the most part, with many aspects of their life. Uh, at the top of that list is their job. <laughs> and they would like to retire. They would like to stop. And they would like to focus on other things. And they're very clear about what they would like to focus on. Uh, and they happen to be things that would be of great benefit to other people. Okay. And they are nervous that they'll run out of money. They're nervous that they'll run out of money. This person, if they never worked again, could maybe financially support everybody in this room. And the view, the belief, the idea that they might run out of money is real to them. And it's very, very scary. This is very interesting, right? This category of emotional distress includes um, all psychological emotional pain and distress. Okay? Worry about the future, what we will have and what we won't have. I talked a little bit about this last night, right? Worrying about things we did in the past. That's true for some of you. I, you know, I've gotten to know some of you. and uh, This is... Uh, loop that plays itself over and over sometimes. This is not really new information to those of us who have uh, made some commitment to studying these teachings and doing this, doing this practice. There's a third category of dukkha or suffering that we can understand through the imagery of the near shore, which will create a different kind of bridge to start to talk about fear and courage. And this is existential dukkha, or existential suffering, or existential pain. This is described in a clear and compelling way by Stephen Cope. Does anybody know Stephen Cope, who's been at the Kripalu Institute for Yoga and Health for a very, very long time? He is was, until very recently, the director of the Institute for Extraordinary Living, where I, uh, for a short period of time, did some uh, yoga research on the intersection of Hatha Yoga and uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Stephen writes, he frames it initially as a question to himself, and then he answers it. What do you fear most in this life? What do you fear most in this life? This is his answer. I'm afraid that I'll die without having lived fully. I'm afraid that I may be missing some magnificent possibility. That perhaps I have not risked enough to find it. That maybe I've lived too safe a life. I'm afraid that I'll die without having lived fully. I'm afraid that I may be missing some magnificent possibility that perhaps I have not risked enough to find it, that maybe I've lived too safe a life. In this case, playing it safe means being controlled by fear to the extent that we may get to the end of life and not realize what we wanted most for ourselves, what we most wanted to give, and maybe even what the world most wanted from us. Do you know Martha Graham, the dancer? There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening, that is translated through you into action. 
And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. There is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. We might find in our permission, in this permission, to be ourselves in order that we do not withhold from the world our uniqueness. We might find in this permission to be ourselves in order that we do not withhold from the world our uniqueness. With this understanding, authenticity becomes a form of generosity that challenges and maybe uproots our own doubt. What Stephen Cope and Martha Graham both point to <coughs> is the healthy and deeply spiritual need we have to live life a certain way. And by spiritual, I mean the shared human need we have to make meaning out of life. To have a purpose and to have a way of satisfying that purpose. <coughs> so this is not the usual Dharma talk that takes the perspective that our sole task is to be content with all conditions no matter what. This is the other side that argues on behalf of the fact that here I am, I do have wants and needs, many of them very, to use a Buddhist term, noble, well-intended, good for me, good for others, and that there's a distinct value and learning how to accomplish life by way of meeting those personal needs. <laughs> One way of thinking about this is that the Dharma actually gets very, very narrow. The Dharma gets very, very narrow. As we become more clear about what is not working for us, as our practice matures and our values press more deeply into our conscience and begin to suggest what we might be regretful of if we don't take care of it before we die, we are starting to see the truth of our lives in a very real, intimate way. If we don't tend to this, we experience existential dukkha. We might stand on the near shore looking at the far shore, which is the life we want, wondering when and how to get there. In our culture, we tend to think of success as having many choices in being able to have as many of our needs met as possible. Ever notice your mind orient itself toward life in this way? Right? That success would be having all of our wants, having many, many, many needs met. having many choices and many needs met. But it's easy to see with even a little exposure to Buddhist thought, 
Buddhist practice, that this way of perceiving is indeed rooted in delusion, sense gratification, and attachment. From a Dharma point of view, insight begins to replace the complexity of overwhelming choices with the simplicity of a directed and focused life. We naturally hone in on what matters and we experience less doubt. The paralyzing psychological factor of resistance that thrives in the absence of self-trust and courage. So how do we address this fear that, as the initial image suggests, is avoiding this transition to the other shore? In practical terms, as practitioners, how can we come to learn from and work with fear. Where do you think we do this? Where do we work with fear? Ed is saying. (laughs) There's one place in the present moment. That's where we work with fear. Sorry for the cliche. But it's true, in the present moment. My first teaching job was at a a small, well, my second teaching job was at a small private school in in the middle of Massachusetts. I had been for a short time in the special education department in a public school, and I learned, I learned, I learned about all the hoops I would have to jump through to get a good job in a public school. I was a full-time substitute, which meant that they could pay me really, really bad and give me no health insurance, but still have me work as much as any other teacher. But I loved it, and I said, well, this is great. You know, how do I, how do I, how do, I do this forever? How do I teach forever? And work with, you know, I worked with a very, very challenged population, um, kind of like you guys know. <laughs> it was just you know I was working I was working with human beings and I just I got this sense of wow we are so we are so complicated right <laughs> and then I saw myself who was going to help but then I wasn't always able to help and it became very interesting and very compelling very very fast and really I just wanted to learn I just wanted to learn and I got it I saw very clearly if I put myself into the position to teach, I would by default always be putting myself in the position to learn. And there's nothing more that I, than I wanted than that. So I said, okay, how do I turn this into a full-time job, get a paycheck? And the answer was, well, you're going to have to, you know, now you're going to have to go to graduate school and you're going to have to take all these tests and you got to, you know, you got to pay your fees over there and then you get a teaching license and that pretty much expires in two years and you got to take another test. So that doesn't sound very good. So I went to a private school that did not require any education. And a uh, very unique school the, uh, was called the Corwin Russell School, named after a man named uh, Ham Corwin, who had long since retired and moved up to the Adirondacks in New York and was living on a sugar maple farm that his, uh, his, either his son or daughter owned. And uh, four times a year, I would drive a, a suburban load of kids up to visit Ham Corwin on his farm, and we'd camp out in the backyard, and we would, he, Ham was pretty sick. We'd come in once during our visit, and we'd all sit in his kitchen, and, and we, the kids would just talk to him, and, you know, he would tell stories, and it was the school's way of... Uh, keep in contact with essentially its lineage holder, this person who uh, supposedly was a very profound and radical educator. And there's one thing that I remember Ham saying, and he said that fear is a field in which courage grows. And I remember, I can, I remember being with these young, you know, like sixth graders, and somebody asked him a question, and this was his answer. 
He said, fear is a field in which courage grows. The suggestion is that courage is inseparable from fear. We can't wait for courage to be present before doing something. And if we look, this is often what we're waiting for. We know we're afraid. Okay, I'm afraid. I can see that. I have that awareness. I'm going to wait till it goes away. <laughs> or maybe I'll ask the right questions of the right people and the fear will go away and then I'll do what I want to do. Okay. This is called wrong view. This is called wrong view. Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, the founder of Shambhala Buddhism, which is a more modern-day convention that integrates uh, Kagyu and Nyingma forms of Tibetan with some Zen, and he was connected to Native American elders, and he, he merged all these forms. Uh, and he said, Fearlessness is the willingness to be with fear. Fearlessness is the willingness to be with fear. I remember when I first heard this, I, I said, oh, I thought fearless was, fearlessness was the absence of fear. That's the waiting. Yes, I want to be fearless, and then I will do what I want to do. I will move into this next deeper, more authentic life stage. When I'm fearless, when the fear is gone. He's saying, no, fearlessness is the willingness to be with fear. So our level of fear is proportionate to our level of comfort with uncertainty. You see that? Courage is simply a con conscious choice to be uncomfortable. And I'd like to suggest, and I hope that you see, that everything we do here is a cultivation of courage. How many times in the past three days have you had to orient yourself toward being comfortable with discomfort or something you didn't want or something you didn't like? It's more like um, count the occasions when you didn't have to do that. <laughs> right? So how do we do this? You know, Ed said, we do it now, we do it in the present moment. And says, this is where we face fear. So how? How do we learn to be in the present moment in a very practical way? This is our way of understanding how Dharma practice might be seen as a path of transforming fear into courage. We do this through the body, explicitly, okay? We stay in our body. It's that simple. We stay in our body. When there's uh, discomfort or tension or tightness, we feel it. We, we just feel it. Right? We turn toward it. Uh, the belly is a little bit upset after lunch, because even though um, you knew uh, you were full and had eaten enough, um, it just tasted so good that you went back for more. <laughs> My friend Dave said uh, once, the meal is over when I hate myself. <laughs> <laughs> but then you have to sit with that belly, right? And then you, you have to feel the uncomfortableness of that, right? <laughs> How about staying in your body when you're scared or nervous, like a job interview or a first date? 
God forbid if you're single and have to go on one of those. <laughs> right? In fact, it can be so scary that some people will stay single for a very, very, very long time. Longer than they want. And they come up with um, good elaborate stories about why they're single, because they're Buddhist and they're, gonna, they're renouncing. <laughs> it's quite true that people choose on this path often to take times away from... I've done it many times, and it can be very, very fruitful. So to, to give space for that too. People can find relationship and avoid intimacy sexually even though they want it because the body doesn't quite work the way they want it to work when they have sexual relationships with others. And so there's this sense of not knowing how to get over that uncomfortable threshold which sometimes through exploration and honest, transparent, very humble conversation can lead to a very healthy and rich and connected and loving, intimate um, Romantic life. But people avoid that. The body is not comfortable. The body is not um, showing up in the way we might otherwise want it to. What about just a difficult conversation? You're talking to somebody, but you're looking down at the floor like this. And then you realize, you realize, I can go like this, right? Right. Sometimes I feel like that when I come up in front of the room, I give my Dharma talk like this. <laughs> right. So you have to, you have to, you know, you have to show up in a sense. You have to lift the head up and look out, right? Um, I feel often uh, that I leave my body when I'm at hospice. I come into usually the same nursing home. Before I even see a patient, uh, my feet are literally sticking to the floor, which grosses. That's how dirty the floor is. And the smells are horrible. Horrible. And the sounds. Sometimes you get a woman in the corner in her chair, and the only thing she knows how to do is yell for help. Help me! Help me! Help! And there's no one to help. They're understaffed. And the, help, the staff knows that even if they go and help and talk to her and have a conversation with her, as soon as they turn around, she's going to, help me, help me. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, this is what, I mean, and you're just in it, right? And I can feel like, I, it's almost like I leave my body. It's so uncomfortable for me. It's so uncomfortable. Um, this is fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to be in the nursing home in a sense. I mean, you know, it's a practice. I'm getting better, but I, I have to, it's almost like I have to, when I notice that's happening, it's like, okay, feel my breath. And then it's all, it's tight and it's contracted. Okay, breathe. You know, stay in your body. Stay in your body. So one way to do this work is to stay in the body. We relate to the present moment through the body. What's another way we do this? Through feelings and emotions. Okay? Be willing to feel our difficult emotions. Not repress them. Not replace them with sensual gratification. Movies, food, sex, drugs, exercise. Nothing wrong with exercise, but we can use that to avoid too. This goes against all our conditioning, right? I said this at the beginning. I mean, this go. I mean, for whatever reasons, and Buddhism offers some insight into this, but there's also just our cultural conditioning and our familial conditioning. We don't necessarily have a good sound logic for turning toward that which is painful or emotionally uh, distressing. And it makes sense. We understand that. I mean, you're sitting on the cushion and, you know, starting to feel the body relax. And then, you know, you're starting to feel a little bit sort of generically emotional. And then start to get a little sad. And then some part of you goes, whoa, 
I'm sad. I don't want to be sad. Definitely not in a group of people. I don't want to be sad. And this happens sometimes on meditation retreat. We're just, there's a lot of emotion. We feel very, very vulnerable. It's a, I, I think it's a very, very sweet spot in retreat. I think it's a very sweet spot for any human being. And then sometimes the, the, the tears start to come. And then, then, then there's another part of us that goes, oh no, not the tears. <laughs> Def, definitely don't want tears. And, but they're coming, right? And they're coming, right? And then they're dripping down our face, right? And it's like we've got a little pool right here. Water, right? And we're struggling like, okay, I think this is good for me. <laughs> But I'm not sure. I don't know. You know, there's a part of it that's just like, not now, right? Yeah, right now. Right now in this group of strangers. Please, right now in this group of strangers. Right. I mentioned this already, too, but to, to, to say it again, because it came up a lot in interviews one of the risks of identifying with Buddhist practice is that we might think that we are supposed to transcend difficult emotions. And images of awakening can support this view. Right? Full awakening. But I wonder about this. And regardless, I do think any movement toward awakening requires that puddle of tears right here, just at least um, metaphorically, right? So, one view accommodated by the third noble truth, which is cessation, is that difficult states, suffering is transcended. Another view is that we don't so much do away with dukkha or difficult states, but rather boldly and elegantly learn to embrace them. This references the view that being with is inherently transformative. Do you remember this? Right? That being with is inherently transformative. So there's a third way that we directly face fear. And that's through actions. So the first was through staying in the body. The second was through staying with or turning toward difficult emotions and feelings. The third is with action. Consciously choosing to do things we want to do. That's it. Are there some things in your life that you would like to do that you're not? Let's reflect on that for a minute. Doing things we want to do. Writing, serving others, retiring, taking a lower paying job that is more aligned with our values, or taking a higher paying job despite feelings of inadequacy. I don't deserve a higher paying job. Someone paid me well once and I felt guilty. <laughs> it's very interesting. I didn't want to tell anybody. That's a matter of self-worth, isn't it? You see that? Simply taking on anything uh, challenging despite an inner voice that says, I can't do it well enough or I won't be supported. Right? Maybe you want to get married. Maybe you want to get divorced. Maybe you want to end a relationship. Because really, it's not bringing you alive. But uh, maybe it's the best you'll get. Maybe you have to settle. Maybe you uh, want a long period of aloneness. Maybe you'd like to take a relationship break. You're worried about what other people will think. Maybe you're 
uh, maybe you want it and you're actually terrified of the feeling of aloneness or loneliness. Maybe you want to do a really long meditation retreat. Rilke, perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us in its deepest essence is, in its deepest essence, something helpless that wants our love. So, in this passage, beauty is that moving forward, not knowing what's going to happen. And it's probably going to be messy. The beauty is the courage itself, the willingness uh, to get your feet dirty, in a sense, right? So what is the result? What happens when we live this way? What happens when we decide to really be with fear as a practice? We see that fear is part of the fabric of self-view. And when we take risks, we are not just getting stronger at being uncomfortable and maybe having the life we want on the outside, but we are challenging the solidity of our beliefs in the sense of self that is identified with them. Taking an action despite fear, we begin to see the impermanent nature of our fears, which allows us to bring a greater skepticism to their solidity. In a sense, it's our actions, both on the cushion and off the cushion, that are a literal testing of how real fears are. This is a literal testing. It's an exploration. What is fear? What we find out is that they are mostly conditioned ideas that don't hold up. We don't always know this because we don't get that far. That's the point. Then we apply the same insider understanding to the view we have of this self who is afraid. It too is impermanent. We see it. So courage actually, which has a a lofty and romantic quality to it, Courage is actually rooted in insight. It's based on direct experience. There's a particular kind of knowledge that accommodates this in our life. There's a process of investigation that we go through experientially. One, we notice fear. We're afraid of something, okay? We notice fear. Two, the practice begins at step two. We enter into the situation anyway. There's five steps, and we can pause right here and just reflect on how much time uh, we spend in stage one thinking about maybe stage two. We still have another four steps to go. Step one, we notice fear. We're afraid of something. Might be as simple as being afraid to walk back in this room at the beginning of a meditation period. Two, we enter into the situation anyway. We turn toward this feeling in the body. We turn toward this difficult emotion. We call the person that we want to go out on a date with. We schedule a meeting to sit down with our boss and tell them that we 
are leaving on Monday, <laughs> whatever it is. Okay. What happens? What happens when we enter into, which of course we know from our practice is staying with. That's a staying with. What happens if we stay with something long enough? What happens from your practice over the weekend? If you stay with something, what happens? It changes. That's three. We see fear changes. Number four, we recognize, this is insight, we recognize it as impermanent. This is a seeing of a Nietzsche. This is not an idea at this point. This is not a good philosophy. Uh, this is a direct experience. This is experiential. Right? And number five, we connect this clear seeing of Anicca to self-view. This typically is revealed in a question form. The mind is just blown wide open. Where is the self? Where is the self? If before the self was afraid and fear is now gone or it's changed or it's less, sometimes it doesn't go away all the time, but it reduces, oh, I'm fine. Where is the self? If before the self was afraid and fear is now gone, how do I understand what a self is? I really want to invite you to begin to ask this question in your practice. Where is it? Have you found it yet? My guess is not. If you found it, if it was locatable, and if it was manageable or controllable, you would have found it, and you would have told it, always be happy. Because <laughs> that's what we want. Right? And you would arrange things in order for that to be the case. In recollection, you know, to recollect is one of the common translations of sati, the root of mindfulness, right? This is a contemplative path to contemplate, to look deeply at the nature of, to ask questions, uh, to reflect deeply. In recollection, what we see is that our view or perception containing both the emotion of fear and a sense of self that gave rise to the fear are impermanent. They're coming and going. When we allow ourselves to be afraid, to turn toward the uncomfortableness, and stay long enough for feelings to reveal their impermanence, along with the permeable nature of the self, we learn a great lesson not only about what we are capable of, but also about the emptiness of things themselves. The true nature of mental fabrications is that they are not solid. They are not fixed, but are causal, which is to say they're interdependent. They condition one another. Ultimately, they do not hold up under the watch of mindfulness. They don't hold up. They don't hold up as solid. So seeing the true nature of the self in this way, we become more free. And this creates a positive feedback loop in favor of more time spent on the far shore. What we come to recognize is that there is nothing to lose. Fear is always the self worried of self-compromise. What we come to recognize is there is nothing to lose and there's nothing to gain. There's no person to lose or gain anything. So we come to recognize our not-self nature. And it is this not-self quality of knowing or knowledge that we rely on 
to take the risks that our relative fearful self wants to take but doesn't always have the courage for. So it's me, my scared self, relying on insight to take a risk. We come to recognize our not-self nature. And it is this not-self quality of knowing or insight that we rely on to take the risks that our relative, fearful self wants to take but doesn't always have the courage for. I'll close with a short passage by uh, Adrian Rich, a feminist, essayist, and poet. Uh, died in 2012. Either you will go through this door or you will not. Either you will go through this door or you will not. If you go through there is always the risk of remembering your name. (coughs) Either you will go through this door or you will not. If you go through, there is always the risk of remembering your name. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. 